0: Hello and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. This show is for anybody who wants to make creativity the filter for their life, to redefine their relationship with fear, take it out of the driver's seat, and through these things, hopefully step more fully into the essence of who you are. Creativity is so important. Happy 2020, by the way, honey ones. My name is Lauren LaGrasso, and part of the reason why creativity is so important is because it's one of the few things that AI can't replicate. Meaning that in the future, moving forward, if we want to keep jobs and be viable, it's not just like this fluffy, floaty thing. It's actually a really tangible life skill that we need to have in order to become financially viable. So, anyway, what up? <laughs> Before I get into the show, I just want to say one thing. If this show has meant anything to you and if it's helped you in any way, if you can take a minute and just go ahead and tell a friend about the show, post it on your Instagram or any social media, and rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts if there's a capability of rating and reviewing. It means a lot. It really helps the show spread. And I appreciate you for doing that. And let me know how I can support you. So... Today I want to do a creative check-in, and the creative check-in is all about saying yes, even if you don't know how you're going to do it. And this came up because when I was in Michigan, I was watching a lot of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I was sitting there thinking, wow, gosh, it'd be so much fun to try comedy. Because, you know, I have lots of conversations with myself. So I'm like, God, it'd be so much fun to try comedy. And then the next thought is, Lauren, don't you have enough on your plate? Maybe you should just like cool it down. Maybe you'll try it when you're 50. (laughs) But I still had this like thought in my heart, like it just looks so amazing what she was doing. And I know comedy is a thing that takes many years to procure. It's not something you can just like overnight be good at. I've done it once in my life when I was in college, and it's truly one of the hardest arenas of performance that anyone can go into. But I still kind of had that little tickle in my heart of wanting to do it. So lo and behold, you know, I talked on the last episode about the power of stating what you want. And I didn't even say this out loud. I just literally thought in my head. And lo and behold, the next morning, this amazing comedian, Mara Merrick, reached out to me. I was supposed to go record a podcast episode with her. And so she offered, she was doing a comedy show in Michigan, and she offered for me to host the show. So like 12 hours after I had this thought, I was being offered to be put in the vicinity of comedy. And I had no idea how to host a comedy show, But it seemed like God was literally like dropping an opportunity in my lap, so I had to say yes. And yeah, did I have imposter syndrome? Sure. Yeah, it it felt weird. It felt like, oh God, I don't know. But you know, end of the day, I'm hosting a comedy show in Michigan. My one goal is to make the comics look good. And I did my research. I got everything explained to me, and I got up there and did it. And it was scary, but it was fun. And now I think, If and when I do try doing stand-up on my own, it's going to be a lot more accessible because I had that one opportunity I said yes to. But if I had said no because I was too afraid or because I didn't know exactly what I was doing or because I felt like I wasn't worthy, then I would have shut myself off from maybe a new door I could walk through or at least like saying that I did something that I really wanted to try. So... If someone presents you an opportunity and you feel like you're not qualified, take it anyway, man. That's what the internet's for. And that's what faking it until you make it is for. And the truth is, if you have enthusiasm and you care and you're a hard worker, people will forgive a lot of the gaps in your experience level because... You can't teach those things. You can learn everything else, but you can't teach enthusiasm and hard work. And so, yeah, I made a few jokes. Uh, Maybe I'll post some of it at some point. My parents ended up coming and took some videos. But it was really fun. And if you get the opportunity to do something you want or something that is adjacent to what you want, even if you don't know exactly what you're doing, take the opportunity, do your research, ask around for tips from anyone who's done something similar to that and just go for it. And so now I want to get into the guest. She is amazing. Her name is Jessie Palter. She is a singer-songwriter, jazz vocalist, full-time working musician, and mental health advocate, best known for playing venues such as Cliff Bells, Hotel Cafe, writing for publications such as Thrive Global, and speaking at the Recording Academy, a.k.a. the people put on the Grammys, and BMI. Jessie knew from a very young age that she wanted to perform and started seriously pursuing her music career at just 13 years old. She's rubbed elbows with many of the industry's greats, including the one and only Eminem. You gotta stay tuned. She's got some incredible stories about him that she shares on the podcast. However, her career wasn't all sunshine and roses. It's been an uphill battle in many ways, and she's really had to fight for all of her success. A few years ago, she finally got signed to her record deal, and after this long journey she had been on since she was a young girl, it felt like it was all happening. However, while her professional life seemed to be taking flight, she was struck with personal and sudden tragedy. While she was living her dreams on paper and off, making her full living from performing music, she was also struggling with depression, disappointment, and the beauty and struggle of being a big dreamer. She didn't let that stop her, though. She put out her amazing album paper trail in 2019, and she also took that pain she was feeling and turned it into purpose, speaking out about what she calls the mental health crisis in the music industry. From our chat, you'll learn how to overcome imposter syndrome, start getting honest with and confronting mental health and depression, why sometimes you should think of your passion as a job, how to trust your gut, make it in the music industry, start over, and remember your why. Now, here she is jesse palter jesse thank you for being on the show thank you so much for having me oh my pleasure and we had dinner a couple weeks ago we know each other because emily former guest of the show and friend of the show is your cousin and she set us up on a friendship date i love it she's a friend friend matchmaker she really is and she called herself an energy matchmaker it's like wow Oh, I love that. Put it on a card, honey. Yes. <laughs> Small B-. hyphen <laughs> hyphenate So I started to know your story last week, and we basically did like a podcast episode. And I'm like, well, we should do this in front of microphones when we're not like, you know, tipsy off of margaritas. I know. Although, Although that it, would be fun. I Maybe think. next time. But one of the most interesting things about your story to me is that you're a singer-songwriter, and you have been since you were basically like, you know, had a voice. You've been singing. Mm-hmm. And when you were 13, you really fully decided, like, along with your family, that you were going to hardcore pursue this. Yes. So if you could just take us through that kind of moment a little bit, and then I want to go through some of the benefits and drawbacks of that.
1: Sure. So I I had always been doing it kind of at the point of it being a cute hobby. (laughs) Uh, I come from a really musical family, and so I think... When they realized that I was bit by the bug, they really sort of nurtured it and fostered a love of music. And so I, from a really young age, when I was two and three, I was like putting on shows and my family's every family gathering, I was up performing with my relatives and such. And then my sister and I... um Started auditioning for community theater when I was about five. And then, you know, of course, like the dance lessons, the piano lessons, the performing arts summer camp. So I'd always been doing it as as a hobby. And then when I found songwriting, it felt like something bigger. I felt like I was processing in my own sort of middle child, sensitive, <laughs> inherent being way how to navigate my way through life feeling just many, many things. And so I approached my parents and I said, I really want to do this. and Like
0: professionally, you said? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I don't even really think I knew what that meant. I mean, clearly you can't. You have an idea of what it's like when you're 13 years old and it's certainly far more glamorous than it ends up being. (laughs) Well, I think that the actual art is
0: as glamorous as it feels, but oh, the business of it, <laughs> the business of it is the sure, brutal part. Sure. And it's hard to separate those two. It but is the hard. art of it, I mean, it is, it's like a, on a soul level, it's glamorous. Yes. you yeah. ha-
1: And you have to work to protect that. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult. It is difficult. So
0: you told me this story where everybody sat around a table and like actually Correct. had a meeting.
1: Yes. So what ended up happening is my, my parents felt that, you know, They put equal amounts of love and effort into all three of their children, and they knew that this was sort of an all-encompassing endeavor. So we sat at at our kitchen table, and my parents sat, myself and my older sister, my younger brother, down, and they said, Jessie has expressed that she really wants to do this very seriously. She wants to become a recording artist. That was really kind of the focus at the time. And they said, "Does, does anybody have any objections? Because you know, when you're 13 years old, there's a chance that there could be quite a, a bit of traveling, which could uproot the whole family. And, you know, what does that mean? I remember we said year after year, like, next year, you're going to be homeschooled. <laughs> um, and when that never, never quite Never quite got there. <laughs> so we we really sort of made that decision as a unit, which I'm really grateful for, because I think I would have felt terrible if either one of my siblings had resentment towards me throwing myself into this. And... They knew how badly I wanted it. You know, it didn't come from my parents. My parents were just incredibly supportive. But it was also an amazing thing that I, I got my brother and sister seal of approval as well. And then we just dove in headfirst. And next thing I knew, I was out in Nashville recording. And it all really began at that level. So what did
0: that look like in action and how did it affect you and the family? The Nashville part of it? The or, whole thing, like mm-hmm. actually pursuing it hardcore. Like how did you go about, okay, I want to pursue music as a career when I'm 13 right. to I'm down in Nashville in
1: writing sessions? Sure. There was There was a beauty to just having the hunger and none of the knowledge. Like I was not jaded by any of it. Yeah. It's amazing how much you can get done when that's happening. It's
0: amazing. That was like my first year out here. Why I played so many places because I didn't know how hard it was. Yeah. I wish we could all just brainwash ourselves to get back to that scenario. I
1: agree. I think we could get a lot more done. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Um, Maybe they'll come up with a science.
1: Yeah. Really. (laughs) A potion.
0: A movie about that. Oh, that'd be Uh, great. (laughs) Give me the pill. So. What were we saying? So you were saying that you were so – you didn't know the actual treachery of it. So it was easier to get things done in that initial period.
1: Totally. So it was really just about like putting one foot in front of the other, which I've ultimately gotten back to focusing on that all these years later. But I just started doing my little research. Got all super sleuthy. It was the Mm -hmm. the heyday of AOL. And so – I don't know. Was Google even around? I somehow found this producer named Andrew Gold, who became one of my mentors. And he, he wrote the Golden Girls theme song, Thank You for Being a Friend. Aww. But he was also really kind of one of those real deal 70s singer-songwriters. He was the head of Lind- Linda Ronstadt's backing band, The Stone wow. Ponies. And he was kind of on the scene when the Eagles were the, doing their grind and um, the Beatles and... He just was really respected both as a musician and as a songwriter. I found him and I reached out to him. I sent him an email. I was like, probably, you know, I mean, I'd be so embarrassed to read it. It's probably like, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> Produce me. Um, Jeez. And whatever it was, he thought it was hilarious. So he sent me an email back and he said, you know, why don't you have, why don't you call me? And I'd like to hear you sing. And so I called him with my mom. She held up the phone, and <laughs> you know, a white Jewish girl from West Bloomfield, Michigan. And yet, I felt compelled to sing a very soulful rendition of the Christmas song "Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire." Was it Christmas time? I don't even think so. I think I just liked singing <laughs> you that felt song. Moved by it, I did. <laughs> and so after that, he said, "Bring her out to Nashville, I'll produce her." That's how it started.
0: And at that point, was it like a work for hire thing where you were paying him, and then you were gonna produce the album, or was he just doing it pro bono?
1: He was a mensch. He he just believed in me, and he wanted to produce music for me, and ultimately songwrite with me, and teach me about the importance of songwriting. And then then he he wanted to use his connections to shop me. Holy so- cow! It was an amazing so, process. So so yes, my, my, you know, we drove out there. We drove to Nashville from Detroit and we got our own hotel, but all of the production, all of that, and the mixing and the mastering and him using his connections, he just did because he saw something, he heard something. Wow. So I am forever grateful for that. I learned so much from him.
0: So I want to get back to the path in a sure. bit, but we need to break a few things down. Okay. So benefits and drawbacks to having your parents support you and your whole family support you in that way? Because you know it's not like we're sitting here being like, oh, boo-hoo, I had supportive parents. But there is a certain level of pressure that then goes into the work when you know that your family's put so much on the line for you. Yes. What was that like for you? And how would you advise other people in a similar scenario?
1: I don't even think I thought about it until just recently because it was so full steam ahead. Mm. Uh, it felt very much like a family affair. I think The pressure hit me more as of late when I, for the first time in my entire life, had to take a look in the mirror and ask myself, do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to keep putting myself through this cycle of affirmation and rejection? And would that be letting my parents' emotional investment down? That's heavy to contemplate. (laughs) <laughs> really yeah. heavy. You know, this is many years after I was 13, more years than I'd like to admit. You know, I always want to make my family proud because they've been through all of it with me. It's funny what I'm realizing because, and I'm sure we'll get to this part of the story, but what I'm realizing is that even when I did that, like real hard look in the mirror, I think I was contemplating it with my mind and not my heart. Mm. What's the difference? What's the difference? My heart is very much at one with who I am as a creator. Like, it's just sort of like music is me. I'm sure you understand that Mm -hmm. because you're a badass girl too. What we make is a piece of us. I always call it my baby,
0: you know? It's like you push out a baby into the world and then, you know, people can do what they want with it. And, And there's wonderful fans who listen to it and get inspiration from it. But there's some people who also want to destroy it because of... God only knows what's going on in their sure. lives. And so it's a real vulnerability and risk, but in your heart it's still safe.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the the creation can be on a real cerebral level as well, but I feel like the craziest part of it has been if I've been through many iterations of my career and you know, it's sort of been not just one big break, it's kind of been a bunch of small fractures.
0: <laughs> it's funny that we use the word break, isn't oh, it? I didn't geez. think about that till you said fracture. I'm like, "Oh god, that's dark."
1: <laughs> well, no, it's been it's it's just been there's been a lot of close encounters with mm, perhaps what I wanted on paper. And I ultimately I guess got received what I what I wanted on paper and then managing the expectations has been a whole other ball game. But yeah, I think that I think that my heart was always just like, it's, it, you know, if this iteration of my creative journey isn't the thing, like, I'm a creator. You still got to create or else you die. I mean, like, that's who we
0: are. You know, like no matter what's happening, like the thing that I keep trying to say to to people listening and to myself too, because I've obviously struggled with this, like sure. doing everything independently and pushing it out and feeling like I have to fight for everything and you like go, get people to care. And, you know, it's a lot. But if I don't put out what I have in my heart, I will disintegrate into the ground. Sure. And I'm not ready to do that yet. Yeah, I get it. You know, so, but there's a lot there. And how are you now? You mentioned like getting back to your child brain. How are you now working at getting back to your child brain?
1: I think of her all the time. I think, yeah, I know. I think, I think of her all the time. It's crazy. And I've been asked this, I feel like in interviews as of late. I am living her dream on paper. I truly am. And I think more than on paper, too. I always wanted to live in LA. Here I am. I always wanted to do. Music full time. Here I am. I got the record deal. Here uh, you are. Here I am. I'm surrounded by an incredible creative community. You know, I've got two dogs. I, I get to go hiking. I, I mean, I awesome got yeah, awesome hubs. Who's been really just essential. How important entire- is
0: that to having that kind of a solid partner? And how do you know when you have somebody who's gonna support your art like your husband has?
1: Yeah. I mean it's been it's been massive for me. I don't think I could have made it to the finish line with this release without him. He's great. He's it's you know, it's funny, I don't I don't really talk about him a lot in interviews. There was and I'm just gonna come clean and say this. There was there was a decision that was made early on in marketing meetings where I was encouraged to take off my wedding ring. These are the types of things that we talk about in marketing meetings.
0: (laughs) I love how everyone's like for marketing, like just be authentic, be yourself. People want to see who you are and they're like, take off a big part of yourself. Well, here's the thing though. I get why they're saying it. I really do. But, but at the same time, like people want to know this stuff. The reason I ask these questions is because the person you're with, I mean, like, I know Whitney Houston had other shit going on, but like look at Bobby Brown. Like they can drag you into the ground. Yeah. You know? So it's so important to be with somebody who's of integrity. Like you either have to be with someone who is team you sure or be single.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He chased me out here. I mean, he knew what he was signing up for. And yeah. he's sort of been my my partner in crime throughout this grind. But you're saying in the marketing meeting, they wanted you to take what? off the ring. They did. And I and I do. And here's why. The ring is personal. And as much as you want to put out there, I think it also is important to keep a few things for yourself. Mm -hmm. So as long as I do not have to lie about being married to this wonderful gentleman who, you know, supports me and has really been a real rock for me, then it's cool. I don't need to throw it in people's faces. Like, he's not he's 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 not, not a public a, figure he's not a, yeah, yeah he's like a behind the scenes kind of guy <laughs> he comes to the shows and he sort of stands off to the side and lets me do my thing so I feel tremendously grateful for him and also because he's not he he can be creative but he's not like he's you know he's more of a science kind of guy right uh, he's a doctor and so I think it helps to have somebody with somebody a little bit more oriented. of a pragmatic <laughs> mindset i mean i feel like it really does yeah he did you know he he kept me from kept me from self-destructing for a couple of years straight that's important it it's really is. important to have someone
0: who can kind of bring you back down to earth and make you realize it's going to be okay So let's get back to Nashville, Jesse, Okay, around 13, 14 years old. You're finishing up your album. You're shopping it around to people. Like what's going on during this time? What's going through your head? Right. What are your expectations?
1: So we didn't do a full album. We did a few demos and... I was really focused on the songwriting component. It was also really like my first time in a real studio. You know, I'd done I'd done demos in in my garage prior to that when I was like eleven and twelve. But this That's was really impressive. Mm, thanks. <laughs> so I had I think a much more glamorous idea of what it would be like. You know, it was like I was looking at Britney Spears and NSYNC and thinking, you go to Hollywood and you make a pig. <laughs> That's not to say that I wasn't willing to work because I have always loved the work. I've always had a tremendous respect for the creative process. I think there was a part of me that thought once I was brought to Los Angeles that I was going to get discovered like singing a cappella in a bathroom. <laughs> Would you just sing
0: in oh, public yeah. all the time? I still do that sometimes. Oh God, so TBH.
1: That's <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you do
0: it. Well, I do it and then I get caught and then I'm embarrassed. Sometimes I do it because I'm like thinking someone might be looking. But there was a time I was just telling someone this story the other day. I was in my old apartment complex and I was singing. No one was in the garage and there's great acoustics in the garage. All of a sudden I'm waiting at the elevator and this guy comes up behind me and I turn around and I go, oh. And he goes, are you a singer? And I don't know why I said this, but I just looked at him straight-faced and said, big time. Yeah, girl. Yeah, you did. And then I was like, "Um, you know, yeah, I sing. I do gigs. All right. And then we had to ride the elevator together. I bet you made his day. Maybe. Or maybe he was like, wow, there's a, like a psychopath living in my building. No. <laughs> but so you you were like... Thinking like it was gonna happen, you're gonna get discovered, and everything was gonna make sense. Sure, it was mm-hmm. like
1: really gonna happen overnight. I think there was a part of me that just felt like it was just gonna be the thing. And I then still I felt like that at grind. 22. Yeah, you know, yeah. and my brain
0: was more developed by then. You know, as an adult, I think right. that I think so many people have that idea, and it's a grind and it's painful. But that must have been extra hard to handle when you were an early teenager. Yeah. How do, so you've mentioned expectations a couple times. I know that's a thing. Let's talk about expectations. Sure. Like, how do you view them today? Like, how do you manage them, or like
1: try not to have them while still being excited about things? Because I think that's really difficult. Absolutely. Well, I think that the work for me has been not so much on trying not to have them as much as it's been being gentle to myself for having them mm. and working to manage them. How are you gentle to yourself for having them? I have always been a big dreamer, and so with big dreams comes big expectations, and that's just me. I think checking myself has helped a lot. You know, look, I've been in, I've been in therapy for many years now, so I talk a lot about these types of things, and I'm always trying to work on myself and just learn how to, how to be okay with what is. Um, but the expectations thing for me has been because I've always just had these big plans and I've always believed that it was, is my purpose. And you know what? Still to this day, after all of the setbacks and the hurdles and the high points and the low points, when I'm doing the music, when I'm doing the work, it totally feels like I'm in my purpose. So all the other crap, just to sort of like the janitorial stuff that comes with the job, comes with the territory. That's a great quote. The janitorial (laughs) stuff.
0: It is. That's exactly what it is. It's just something you have to do to get the nice
1: clean house. Yeah. You know what? What I'm trying to do for the first time in my life is think of it like a job because I'm at the age now where I'm doing it full time. So it's my job. It's really, really hard to think of it like that because I care way too much for my own good sometimes. But thinking of it like a job helps me put it into perspective and it also sort of helps me create boundaries with myself. Mm. Like what? Like if something feels different or goes different than how I expected it to be or perhaps how I planned, it's like a bad day at the gig. And everybody has bad days in their jobs. It's just that, you know, not everybody at the end of the day gets to say that, like, they're doing what they love or that when they're laying in bed, you know, they're still on the job. And and that's us. So what happened when you actually did move to L.A.
0: for the first time when you were that age?
1: So I didn't move to L.A. then. So oh, you just came so, to LA. So basically what happened? Yes, let's get back. So I came to L.A. and I started being shopped, And, and that means you were going around to different labels. Yes, I was being taken to different mm-hmm. labels that had been sent my demos and had expressed interest in meeting with me. So they brought me out to Los Angeles. I got all dolled up. I remember I went to the Beverly Center and – oh, gosh, we, we have to find this picture. <laughs> I had some girl in the Beverly Center paint – this was for a meeting that I had with DreamWorks Records when I was – 13, I must have been 13, they painted some insane, like, it was almost like a tattoo of, like, flowers and sparkles on my chest. I was so done up. I got my hair did, my makeup did, and then I I walked into Lenny Warniker's office. And And who is that? So Lenny Warniker is responsible for discovering many of the artists that we know and love today. At the time, he was the president of DreamWorks Records, which was a very poppin label and so poppin Poppin'. do people say that
0: i don't know but the way you said it was so proper
1: Um, like mary poppin (laughs) i'm weird you're awesome (laughs) thank you so are you um so lenny werniker brought me in we we had a meeting i had the flower drawn (laughs) tattoo from Beverly Center on my chest at 13 oh, awesome. with glitter all over my eyes and I decided when I was there so I was always there was always like two parts of me there was the super bubblegum pop like tart that just loved Britney Spears and NSYNC and would transcribe all their dance moves and like study their music videos and such and then there was the jazz loving Miles Davis listening like memorize you know Sonny Stitt and and Ben Webster's which are jazz master saxophonists. I loved the feel of swing I loved Ella Fitzgerald I loved Sarah Vaughan and so I was always both and I had this epiphany when I was in Lenny Warnocker's office that I was gonna be a mainstream jazz singer at 13 <laughs> so what ended up happening is he really liked the songs, and then he he had an exclusivity clause with Nick Carter's younger sister, who was signed to DreamWorks, mm. so he couldn't sign any other young emerging female artists. And when he let me know that, I said, "Well, that's okay because, like, I'm not. I, I want to be a jazz singer. I want to be like Ella Fitzgerald." And he was like, "You just gave me the most bubblegum pop demo. <laughs> it was super bubblegum pop," and I was like, "What? Well,", well I'll just go back and I'll write some jazz songs. (laughs) My mom was kicking me under the table like, shut up, (laughs) Jesse." What that meant to me is that I needed to artistically go back to the drawing board. And so I did. So back to Detroit, I went and I dove into more songwriting. And then when I was 14, I was connected through an entertainment lawyer in Michigan who was sort of negotiating some stuff that I was doing with Andrew and he introduced Who's me Andrew to- again, the Andrew again? Andrew Gold, okay. the producer mm-hmm. in Nashville. And this entertainment lawyer introduced me to the Bass Brothers, Mark and Jeff Bass, who signed me to a production deal when I was like, you know, mid-14. And they were really big Detroit legendary producers at the time because they did all of Eminem's mm. first record. Most of it, it was like, Emin- it was the Bass Brothers and Dre. Uh, and- so Eminem was really kind of their moneymaker. And then I was like their pet project. And so I signed with them and we began writing and producing together. And it was a mix of recording in Ferndale, Michigan and traveling out here to Los Angeles. They had actually a studio in, Bur- in Burbank. So I would come out here, write and record. And that was actually kind of glamorous. That was That was a little taste of, you know, maybe what I thought it might feel like, it feeling a little bit like that. Mm. But ultimately what ended up happening is it was a really big time in Eminem's career and of course he had the priority of studio time and and so he would do Do the- you know Eminem? I have met Eminem. <sighs> I they call him Marshall in person, <laughs> so I started calling him Marshall, and then everybody were would come and like, why are you calling him Marshall? That's his name. <laughs> um, yes, I've met him several times. There's kind of a cool story. Actually, the first time that I went to Fifty Four Sound, which is where the Bass Brothers Studio, uh, that, that was the Bass Brothers Studio, they had me improvise. Singing over some chord changes that one of the bass brothers was playing, so I just sort of closed my eyes. I think they wanted to test my ear, and I was—they were like, "No pressure, just sing whatever comes out." And so they played some stuff and just had me sing some melodies over it. And then when I opened my eyes, Eminem was standing right in front of me, and I think he gave them his seal of approval, so they signed me. So it was kind of wow. cool. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about him—like, and like, we could get off subject. He's the real deal. And he would do this thing where, I mean, at the time I was so hungry and just driven. I was like, oh my God, Eminem kicked me out of the studio again today because he had an idea for a song and how dare he. But he was so prolific and so profound with his writing. He would leave his scribbles of his lyrics out on the music stand. And so I would find them when I'd go in to do my vocals the guy is a total wordsmith like
0: that's too cool
1: it's I mean, like, pretty well, amazing you
0: are the only person well, probably one of a few maybe the only person that has that experience i guess that that's is. pretty profound better put it in the memoir honey buns hmm. <laughs> hmm. so okay but then so you ended up going to music school. So, I did. so obviously things yeah. went in more of a straight direction yeah. after that. Yeah. So How was, did you make that decision?
1: So they kept wanting to extend, like, I think, I can't remember the logistics of it, but it was like they had X amount of time to produce stuff for me and then try and shop me for a deal. And then, like, we could either extend, you know, all the legal blah, 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 blah. Whatever it was, they kept asking for extended time. I just thought to myself, time is of the essence. And I want to be a respected musician, first and foremost. I kind of want to be, I don't want to be a chick singer. I want to be part of the band. I want to be one of the cats.
0: What does a chick singer mean to you? I've heard several women bring up something like this, and I think it's an internalized sexism almost. Yeah, My friend Liz says the same thing. She has an issue because people would like compare her to like, which I don't think you're talking about it in this way, but like compare her to like Sarah Bareilles or like folk singers and like female folk singers. I 100% agree. Uh But she has like, I believe it's some sort of like internalized like sexism of what – what it means to be a female musician. Sure. I appreciate
1: you calling me out on that because I think it's maybe just always something that I said without really thinking about what it means. What is a chick singer to you? So there can be a stigma about singers in general that stand in front of the band, that don't have musical knowledge that the rest of the band has, Mm. that can't talk the theory talk. And it was really important to me to be considered a musician first and foremost. I did not want to have imposter syndrome. Mm. And that's something you've never struggled with. No, I think I still struggle with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If I'm being honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think most of us do.
1: But I work really hard Mm -hmm. and I take it, um, I take the music part of it very seriously, I take pride in the amount of work that I've put in, and I'm always trying to learn more, and I'm always trying to hone my craft, and I'm always listening and observing. And so, I think that even though I have like many insecurities. I think that sort of comes with the territory. I also clearly have enough confidence to keep waking up and doing this thing. Right.
0: And it sounds like you're overcoming the insecurities by working hard, which is a really good way to do it. Like if you put in the work and you have the skill set, you can be insecure, but at the end of the day, you can do the job. Yeah. And so your imposter syndrome, well, it's nice that it's trying to get in your way, but honestly, it doesn't matter because you can do the job.
1: Yeah. It's like, I see you. Yeah. Yeah imposter great syndrome, try like really like 10 back.
0: 10 marks for being you know getting out there but really at the end of the day you've got the skills sure oh that's sweet thank you yeah i mean it's true
1: i just love music yeah right like you get it mm-hmm. you're the same yeah but i definitely do and have worked really hard mm-hmm. and that to me hushes the imposter syndrome yeah. That's a great tip for people listening. So, um, so you yeah, didn't want like to If a... you feel that, do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never too late. Double down. So for me, going to school meant I was going to become a little bit more of a mathematician about it, which at first was really great. And then what ultimately happened, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just part of the journey is that I I got in what I refer to as the jazz cave. I became a jazz hermit. And I just wanted to listen to the most esoteric fall jazz recordings and deep cuts and, you know, nerd out really hardcore. And anything that had less than like 20 chords. How
0: dare they? (laughs) How
1: dare they, these (laughs) plebes? For those that
0: don't know, 20 chords is... (laughs) <laughs> A lot of chords. Like most pop songs are four.
1: And the most <laughs> dissonant of all of the chords, I wanted all of them. I just, you know, it really expanded my ears. It expanded mm-hmm. my harmonic sensibilities. The best thing for me about school, because sc- school wasn't great for me, it wasn't. But the best thing is that you, the community of the other music students, is really kind of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, they put you in. A practice room and you're shedding your scare- scales and arpeggios and, you know, you're in theory class and, and musicology, reading about the history and such. But then you get up on the bandstand and it's like, now what? The real school for me was the bandstand, being on stage, doing gigs, learning on the job, falling on my face mm-hmm. and having to figure it out in real time. And then school was more about the networking component of it, which is equally as important.
0: Right. Because a lot of people will find out you went to U of M and be like, oh, let me help you. I'm also from there. You know, there is a thing about that. Would you recommend music school to fellow musicians who are kind of in that intermediate state where they're like, I could either go pursue the career now or I could go to school and really hone my craft?
1: I would be hesitant to tell anybody what's right for them. I think that it can be a great stepping stone for many people, and then it's not right for many people. So I'd be hesitant to make a blanket statement about that. I'm glad that I got to have that experience. I actually left before I could finish graduating because I, st- I was a performance major. So I, I, was, I was in the jazz program. They only accepted one vocalist a year. They were guinea pigging this program. So it I was a pretty extensive audition. And then ultimately, they selected me to be the sole jazz vocalist for mm-hmm. my year, which was a tremendous honor in a lot of ways, but came with its own set of setbacks. And I did the thing for a few years and i had some cool experiences and some not so fantastic experiences and there was some stuff in my personal life that was also going on simultaneously as i was school as i was at school that was challenging my childhood sweetheart was dying of cancer oh gosh so there was that whole thing which How? was not normal you know i that was a funky time in my life but the ultimate reason that I left school was because I really started getting opportunities to perform and the school wasn't incredibly supportive of that component. They were like, you're a student, like be in a practice room. I was like, but I don't know how to put, like, I don't know how to be a band leader on a three hour gig. Like I can scat over giant steps, but (laughs) which is a jazz standard written by John Coltrane. But, um, but I can't, like, put together three hours of music and lead a band. And
0: and that is a very particular skill set.
1: Mm-hmm. You really
0: have to not only know all the musicality, but how to be a leader. And that's something that
1: only comes from doing. Yes. Absolutely. And the, the amazing thing about Detroit is that Detroit's big on etiquette. And they also take their music really seriously, right? So... I started getting these opportunities to play in these clubs and the Detroit audience in a lot of ways was my teachers. They would come up to me. I mean, it would drive me crazy. They would come up to me and like give me notes after kidding? gigs. And I think it was because maybe like they felt like what? Like I was like their darling or like who is this girl? I don't know. What was what's an you know? example of a
0: note? And how oh did you gosh, keep your cool I during this. that? I would, I would probably. I'm very polite and I'm very mm-hmm. kind. But if someone gave me unsolicited advice after
1: yeah. I'd entertained them for three hours, sure. I might have words with them. Oh my gosh, I remember it happened to me all of the time, and that's shocking to me. I've never had that
0: experience at a Detroit show except for, with one of my cousins. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's so. Tell you after.
1: Okay, <laughs> I'm curious. I am open to constructive criticism. I also do, I do well with constructive criticism and well with positive reinforcement. So like, I think I've learned, I've learned that about right. myself. But people often confuse cruelty with constructive
0: criticism. Yes. And constructive criticism, let's clarify, that means when you see something that might be out of place and you say, hey, love the set. I noticed this one thing and here's what I think you could do to make it better because I think you're so awesome and I would love to see you like really soar to the next level. Yeah,
1: people were not that polite. No. No, not at all. You know, I was young and I was, I was getting opportunities to do the gigs that perhaps they at one point had or mm. wanted. I was aware of that and I was sensitive to that. And I also felt like very – I felt like a student, you know. I felt like I had to take advantage of the opportunity to have steady gigs. I mean I went from like – this guy, Bert Deering, who owned Bert's Marketplace, Owned still, which is in the eastern market of Detroit, gave me a Friday-Saturday steady. And then that turned into this venue, Cliff Bell's giving me a regular – place is –
0: Amazing. Aww. If if anyone's in Detroit, you must go there. Yeah, it's a really it's special amazing.
1: Place. It's very special.
0: It's like you feel like you stepped into the like 1950s or 60s suddenly. Yeah.
1: So I played there every Thursday, and then next That's major. thing I next thing I knew, I was doing 250 gigs a year. It was a lot. So is that like 21? Like 20. Wow. Yeah. So I I was learning a lot, you know, and I I had a long way to go I still have a long way to go but I was learning a lot on the job just and I was constantly working because when I left school what ended up happening is I connected with this amazing piano player a guy by the name of Mike Jellick who ultimately became my music director and he and I would sit at the piano all day before the gig Mm -hmm. and we would practice and we ultimately started arranging music together writing music together and then we would go to record stores and we buy records and we'd listen to the records and we'd talk about it he was it was like I went to the school of Mike Jellick like yeah I went to University of Michigan maybe
0: your musical soulmate
1: he is in a lot of ways I've had a couple of those Mm -hmm. and that, uh, that hasn't always been the easiest ride either. Mm. <laughs> can you explain? <laughs> sure. music. I think when you're connected to somebody musically, you can tell me if you experience this too. It's a very quick way to break any sort of boundaries. So I've mm. even had to learn – I've had to relearn this with m- my partner now because certain things that – like you just – when you're connected to somebody musically, you just instantly become close. Do you yeah, feel that? Definitely. I mean, I had that with the first guy I was playing with. He actually was my guest last week. It's just, it's a really deep connection mm-hmm. when you find that with somebody musically. And Mike was one of those people for me. I mean, he, it, it was an interesting dynamic because he was my teacher and then he was also my music director, but I was the band leader. Mm-hmm. So was there so a power So I was kind struggle? of his boss. Oh, there was all sorts of things. <laughs> I love you, Mike. Mike Mike and I are dear friends to this day. When I was writing my record, he and I were actually not in touch. Um, The most recent record you put out. The most recent record Mm -hmm. that I put out. So, you know, I don't want to go into that too much. There's been ups and and downs. He will forever be one of my musical soulmates. I think it was really important for the music for me to do this record without Mike because we – were such like a musical item Mm -hmm. for a while and I learned so much for him and I know that I'm the musician that I am today because of the work that we did together and, and what he taught me and instilled in me, but I also needed to prove to myself that my art is my art, it's my voice and I can and I have a voice. On my own. Yeah. And I have to trust that voice. That's beautiful.
0: So let's like do a fast forward version sure. just so we can bring people up to speed okay. with where you are now. So from writing with Mike and doing all those yes. gigs to here you are, you just released an album. Yeah. You're signed to a label. Yeah. What happened to get you to where you are okay. right now, presently?
1: So another one of my musical soulmates named Sam Barsh, who pulled me out of the jazz cave. <laughs> he was... The first guy that gave me permission to just write a song with two chords, if it feels good. The Beatles did it. You can do it too. (laughs) Damn straight. He is a great jazz musician, but he also just like, he's just a great musician. Mm -hmm. And so I was playing a gig in New York and we were connected through mutual friends, got together to jam. We Played a couple of standards, jazz standards. And then he turned to me and he said, do you want to just write pop music? And I felt like, oh, like, like took somebody took the shackles off. Exactly. It was like, oh, you're a badass musician that is giving me permission to like, do that. Yeah. And so he and I started playing together. And then we ultimately, our collaboration turned into a band. And so that band called Palter Ego was what brought me out to Los Angeles. And we were really focused on doing the band hustle. And we played all around town and, you know, did some videos that got a little bit of traction and we started getting placements and Commercials, et cetera, et cetera. So we were doing the hustle. Sam's career as a songwriter took off. And he realized that his time is best spent in the studio. He still does gigs. Actually, we just played the gig together today and I'm really proud of him. But I had to go back to the drawing board after that in a good way, you know? It was yeah, it yeah. was
0: it was You were happy for him and it was like, Okay, well maybe I
1: am meant to do this on my sure. own. Mm-hmm. You know what? We talked about this briefly. I think some of my some of my biggest musical heartbreaks have been in those moments where my musical soulmates that are not my intimate yes soulmates and I have parted ways. Because that's a totally different type of heartbreak. How do you recover from a partnership like that severing? Oh man, I feel like in a way you sort of you you sort of go through A real breakup. It's sort of like that. The beautiful thing is that Sam and I and Mike and I both went our separate ways at different parts of our journeys, and I'm now back in touch and creating music Mm -hmm. again with both of them, and that's a beautiful thing because the connection that I have with both of them is so strong, and so Sam and I went our separate ways for a little bit, and then I kind of went back to the drawing board. Recorded a jazz record of my original compositions with my quartet that I'd been playing with since I was a kid. And that was going to be released on one label, which, creative heartbreak, (laughs) fell through uh, after like a long four-year courtship. And then I ultimately, actually, it's a funny story. I don't even think I've ever really told this story out loud. So the A&R at the record company that I'm currently signed with, who's no longer with the company. But at the time he was the A&R, he and I had been in touch, you know, when I was 18. He, I think, came to a couple of my gigs in Detroit. The The record label that I'm on is a Detroit-founded record label that also is based out of Los Angeles, but founded in Detroit. And so he had come to a couple of my shows and had sort of been following my career. And whatever it was, I had this moment where I was – clearly it's a it's a – theme that comes up from time to time. I had this moment where I was like, what am I doing with my life? I just recorded this album. I actually had done a Kickstarter. So I like raised the funds through Kickstarter. I knew I really believed in it. I was going to sign with this label. It was this long drawn out thing. And then I was like, I need, I like just need to, I can't keep waiting anymore. I can't keep waiting anymore. And I remember, I like in a fit of emotion pulled into my parking lot and I sort of cra- like crashed just a little <laughs> into the gr- into the garage door. Yeah. And I, f- I was like, that's a sign. I'm just going to call this guy, this A&R. And so I felt like this sudden urge of inspiration, like life's too short. You kind of just got to go for it. Cliche, cliche in my head. And so I picked up the phone and I called him and then immediately got cold feet and hung up. Like it (laughs) it rang twice probably. And I was like, okay, I'm glad he didn't answer. I'm glad I hung up. Like, woo. That was just – Close one. Close one. Sure enough, he calls me right back. He goes, Jesse, did you mean to call me? (laughs) He had my number stored in his phone all those years. So we ended up having a really long conversation and I filled him in on the whole shebang and he offered to listen to the record. And so I sent it to him and I think a couple of weeks later, he reached back out to me and he's like, I've been sitting with your record. We need to sign you. And so that was kind of another long courtship. What year was that? 2015. Okay. And I got signed December of 2016. The music industry, ladies and gentlemen. It's slow sometimes. So so he heard my jazz album. He wanted to sign me for that album. The president, when he listened to the album, the president of the record company, really took a strong liking to the one crossover song on the record. Like, side note, in my mind at this time, my artist brain that, like is just the artist that isn't like Little Miss Music business mogul, thought that I could sort of like get my foot in the door releasing this jazz record and then I could at least gain enough something to then my second project do whatever whatever like if that- to do the pop music that yeah, you wanted to do so you thought sure. like i'll use this because not a lot of people your age
0: were doing jazz or in, like i feel like at least not mainstream And so you use that and you parlay yourself up to the pop. Right. But it is very hard, even making those kind of like what seems like a micro shift. Yes. Shifting someone's perspective to be like, oh, and I also do this, is very difficult when they have you established in a certain gestalt in their brain. Gestalt.
1: I love that. (laughs) Gestalt. Can I use that?
0: Please. It's my favorite thing I learned in college. That's amazing. In communications. There's lots of things I learned in acting.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I still to this day... I think the best way I can describe myself is in genre fluid. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't really hear or feel music in terms of genre. I think that the reason that I'm able to classify myself as a jazz vocalist is because the jazz language is just that. It's a language and I studied it and I worked really hard to understand that language and to be able to communicate that language and learn the history and honor the tradition and all the stuff that comes along with the jazz idiom but when it comes to just like music is just music for me I think we're going in the right direction Mm -hmm. as as an you know listeners we're like more I feel like with the the benefit of streaming is that we're more open-minded than we ever have been I feel like but the business still wants to place you in a box they want to They want to categorize you. They need to know how to market you. Yada, yada, yada. And so I have felt at times like instead of just letting the artist be the artist, like everybody's so busy trying to figure out my elevator pitch. (laughs) It's like
0: just let the music do the talking. I agree. But I think it's not even a music issue. It's a societal issue. Sure. People don't want to let people live outside of the box. It's easier for us as human minds to classify people. Right. And so we try to put people in boxes, but really we're not one thing. We're many things. Yes. And so I think the great thing is that like millennials and the generations underneath are very open to being many different things. I mean, look, at you can even be more than one gender at this point. Yeah. So why not it's so beautiful. be more than one type of music, more than one type of creative Who's to say that you shouldn't be every single thing you think you can be that you are and that you want to be? So I love that you're doing that. And I want to know what your advice is for other people who don't want to live in a box.
1: Don't. (laughs) (laughs) But how do they deal with the
0: adversity of people who try to keep smushing them back in there? Don't listen. How?
1: Just focus on being the best artist and creating the most authentic art that you possibly can I at times have gotten away from that I think because it's really easy you know look here I guess I'm going to fast forward a little bit I recorded this album I was shelved for two and a half years before it ultimately got to come out I'm so grateful it got to come out Mm -hmm. but that must have been torture it was tough it was really
0: tough And to be clear, you couldn't do anything in the meantime. Like, you couldn't release any music in the meantime. I
1: did things, but Mm -hmm. it was... I couldn't release any music in the meantime. There were definitely things that I did. And in retrospect, there are more things that I wish I would have done. But I think everybody kind of got wrapped up in trying to figure out what to do and what the music is. And a lot of times you just got to go. So throughout that whole process, the most important thing for me has been to, to be reminded what got me into this in the first place. And it's, it's the music and it's my love for creating something out of nothing. It's Mm -hmm. my incessant need to tell my stories through songs for myself. And the power is in that my power as a creator is in that it's like I gotta believe in what I'm singing and so it might as well be exactly what I want it to be so yeah I think I would just encourage people to just go for it (laughs) That's good.
0: Along the path, you know, along this really four, four and a half year journey from working to get signed to like putting out the album, Mm -hmm. there were some people that you encountered along the journey that didn't necessarily give you the support that you needed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering how you would advise someone else who's in a similar situation, who has some people in their inner circle who aren't, who are supposed to be team you mm-hmm. and aren't by their actions team you, how do you navigate that situation
1: when you need their help, right? I'm figuring that out. <laughs> I'm still just figuring it out. I don't have that answer it's a, it's a really tricky thing, and I don't want to say that and have anybody feel like, "Oh my God, I'm hearing how difficult it is, so I don't want to try mm-hmm. but it is tricky. And you're right, I have had some people that I had hoped would be in my corner in more ways than they were able to provide. And on one hand, I'm really grateful for that experience because now I know, like maybe if I don't have all the answers, I at least know that when I feel in my gut, like it's not right. Mm. It's not right. Yeah, it's so important to trust your gut mm-hmm. because we always know. Yeah, I'm getting back to my gut.
0: Right. That's- and and you've
1: had so many moments of
0: absolute clarity, like hitting the garage, you know, when you realized you were supposed to be a jazz sure. singer at that point. So what does that feel like to be in those moments of absolute clarity where your gut is in tune with your heart, is in tune with your head and your connection to spirit? Sure.
1: It, those moments feel so incredibly powerful. Yeah. I'm really How do we get more of those? Oh, gosh. <laughs> can you figure it out and I let don't me know? know? I've had so many too where it's
0: like I just keep waiting for those moments to happen and I'm like, do I need to wait for those absolute clarity moments or can I trust the seed?
1: Oh, I like that. Do
0: I have to wait until it explodes into Jack and the Giant Beanstalk or can I trust it when the seed first implants in my gut?
1: I like the thought of you trusting the seed. I do too. I really do. It's hard though because we're is. taught to question ourselves. Yes. Right. But we know everything we need to know. Right. Right. And a lot of times when we're questioning ourselves, it's because we're just afraid. Mm -hmm. Or like asking for
0: someone else's advice. That's what I do. When I want to affirm my own feelings, Mm -hmm. I'll go to someone else and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? But really, I'm asking because I want their approval to
1: think what I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, you are a wise one. (laughs) <laughs> this is truly, this is like a therapy session. It's uh, amazing. Well, for me too.
0: I mean, you know, that's why, I, and we want to talk about therapy and I want to get to mental health. because sure. That's such a big yeah, yeah, platform it is, for you. It
1: is a big part of my story. It yeah.
0: is. And I think it's a big part of so many of our stories and it's beautiful that it's coming more to the forefront, mm-hmm. but I think, For you, I mean, it was something you always dealt with, but I think maybe didn't name as much until this past year. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you take me through a little bit of your mental health journey and what caused you to finally speak out about what you say is the crisis that we're having in the music industry right now?
1: Sure. There were were always things. I remember I had an aunt that died in her sleep when I was just a little kid. And I asked my mom every night before I went to bed, am I going to die in my sleep? And I couldn't fall asleep until she would say, no, you're not going to die in your sleep. Which if you think about it, that's sort of like an OCD behavior. Mm-hmm. It's like I needed, I needed her to answer, no, you're going to be okay. And right. I was like, okay, cool. I can sleep now. So the signs I think were always there when my childhood sweetheart ultimately lost his battle with cancer I mean, it totally makes sense why I would have anxiety issues that stem from that. But, you know, anytime I would get a headache, I was like, it must be a brain tumor. Mm. Still. And it's gotten so much better. I mean, years of therapy and working through it. But I think it makes sense because he was just like a normal kid that, you know, was playing a baseball game and felt the pain. And next thing you know, he had... Bone cancer that ultimately, when it came back after a few times in remission, it went to his brain. So, you know, if it could happen to him, who's to say it can't happen to me, which is just no way to live. I know, (laughs) but I get it. But it was so real. And so that was there. My first encounter with a psychiatrist Was when I lived in Chicago and I fell into a dark place. I was in a relationship with somebody at the time who, for whatever reason, I couldn't admit to myself that I wasn't into him. (laughs) And so I thought something was wrong with me. And my psychiatrist referred to that as distractions. I convinced myself of all these things. And... Ultimately, like when we broke up, they went away. But clearly I had some work to do to figure out, wow, my brain wants to do that. Like that's just how I'm wired. The well-worn path of the way that my brain is wired to think is, is that way. And I say all of this not to like sound like Little Miss Crazy Pants, but just to say that all these things is probably what also helps make me the artist that I am. I just really, I feel things deeply. I'm incredibly sensitive. Um, But I also am very aware how much of a work in progress I am. And I'm just like a total lover. And I just want to love and be loved. And so psychiatry and therapy has been really important to me you know i i had been on medicine i'd been off medicine i'm also like very into holistic natural healthy lifestyley type stuff so you know there have been phases where it's been like full full speed ahead in terms of all holistic remedies but the reason that this has become such an integral part of my life is because it also makes sense that I'm prone to these things because it runs in my family. The day that I signed my record contract, which I had the expectation of it being the most magical day. This was something that I I always dreamt about. Side note, like a record contract is not the be all end all for an artist. So if you're out there, you're listening and you're like, like you don't need to have a record contract to pursue a career and be a successful singer, songwriter, artist, etc. Right. We live in a much different, you know, musical climate now. But for me, that was something that I always wanted the day that I, I got it the day that the signature was officially on paper. My aunt who was one of my, artistic heroes. She was a beautiful visual artist and one of the pioneers of graphic design, actually. Mm. Just like consummate artist brain, hearing her talk, the way that she viewed the world. Oh my God. I was just totally enthralled with her. She drowned herself in the Hudson River. She committed suicide. So this day that I had An expectation of what it would feel like, what it would be like, was totally overshadowed by this absolute horrific event. And so it was a weird time in my life because it was really exciting and it was really emotionally traumatic, you know, the ripple effect that her suicide had on my family was really heavy and I felt it. My mom is like my rock. She's my girl. Mm. And, you know, always been such a pillar of strength for me. And and just like, she's also incredibly altruistic, but very much an optimistic, glass half full kind of person. And she fell into a not so great space, understandably, but it was just a really hard time for her. Her older sister who she admired and looked up to Suicided.
0: So you wrote an article about this in Thrive Global, and you talk about it in depth, and you mentioned that part of why your aunt committed suicide, or at least what it looked like, was because her work wasn't ever received in the way that it really should have been.
1: So I feel like I should, I I can understand how it would come across that way. Yeah. We don't 100% know. Different members of my family have different beliefs, like my mom has a really strong belief that she was sick. She had been having physical symptoms for a while and it oh, kept okay. her from doing her work. And she had always associated so much with being an artist and she wasn't physically capable of doing her work. And it there was a lot that was involved, like a okay. cause of depression. And some people in my family think she just had a moment of mania. We don't really know. She didn't leave a note. Mm. We found out that she had researched most painless ways to commit suicide that was like the closest that we got to knowing that it was premeditated that we found that they found that on her computer but we don't have answers and we'll never have answers Mm. I don't know if she had regrets about not like being recognized for her work. I mean, she was such an extraordinary artist. I actually I was just on tour and I stayed at her place. It was my first time being there. My my uncle still lives in their space in Tribeca. And I was playing a show in New York and I got to stay there for a night and it was so emotional for me. The show was actually on the Hudson River. Mm. So the whole thing was like Mind, I've fuck. gotten chills all through the story. Oh I don't know. Maybe that's uh, her. <laughs> but so, that's pretty amazing. But so her art is all around. Yeah, and it's you know so inspirational. We just don't. We don't have those answers. Yeah. But what ended up happening is that I just I I went from like being so excited about the like this record deal thing to just being incredibly sad, and then feeling like guilty that I felt excited and. You know, everybody would call and when they would call and congratulate me, which I was so grateful for, I also felt very compelled to be like, thank you so much. And my aunt committed suicide. And I remember, like, I just was, I was feeling so much. Mm -hmm. It was such a confusing time. And what I noticed is that when I would say, My aunt committed suicide. It was almost like I said, like I told a dirty secret. Mm. People were so freaked out by me just so openly saying it. But it was my reality. It's, It's facts. My aunt committed suicide. It happened. And I need friends and I need support. And my family's kind of struggling. And I'm also really excited because... I got signed and I'm about to start recording my record. Like, all these things are true. And it's all okay. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like we need to be talking about this more because, like, why are people so weirded out? Like, I said something. I mean, it's really horrific. Mm -hmm. But it's true. It needs to be talked about. Yeah. So I threw myself into the making of my record. And... I think it was like four months later, I was recording background vocals on a song of mine and I got a text from my brother while I was in the studio recording harmonies that my mom's brother committed suicide. So in the matter of four short months, I had this amazing creative experience and then also this traumatic personal life experience. And the silver lining for me was... Like my album's going to come out and I'm going to be in the thick of like living the dream, you know, doing the grind on the road, promoting my album. My music will be out there. I tried to keep my expectations at bay, but you know, it's hard because you put in so much work. You want it to like have the legs that you feel it deserves. And then I, the project sat on a shelf for quite some time. And the focus became less about the creative and more about the business side of it. And like, that's not where my heart is, you know, I've learned a lot. I think my business acumen has gone up tremendously, but like, I do this because I love the music. Like I keep saying it, you know, and so the focus became more about like, what's her story? I mean, something I would hear a lot is like, she doesn't have a story. I don't have a story, and I'm like, what do you what do you mean? I don't have a story. I, I've everybody has a story. I will say that I've received a little bit of clarity on what that means. I still don't even really understand it, but like,, what is the clarity? They have said that it doesn't mean that I don't have a story. It just means that this project's narrative, like okay. Here's the here's the examples because I still don't even really understand it. When somebody talks about Billie Eilish, they can say, "Billie Eilish is 17, and she recorded this project in her childhood house with her brother, you know, Phineas, on their like in their room." It's they like made, an elevator pitch. it's The elevator pitch. Your you know? story's a little bit more
0: complicated. That's the issue. They weren't being creative enough, sorry to say it.
1: Oh girl, you say it. No, you say it.
0: But it's true. It's like your story is not a straight arrow. I mean, also she's been doing it for like 2 years. You've been in this grind for like a long time. A long time. A long time. And she's amazing, by the and way. She, like I'm obsessed with her. But but I'm just saying like you needed someone who could distill all of these stories down into one. Yeah. You and do it yeah totally. <laughs> but I think that this this mental health piece and the fact that you've been struggling for this for a long ass time and you're still fighting, that's the story. Thank you. Easy, duh. Um, you. So <laughs> you know, and, and it's the inspiration the that you kept going. Thank you. Because it's not easy to keep going when you have all those obstacles thrown in your way. Even though you're getting a lot of positive reinforcement, a lot of the things that you were getting in your face were telling you to stop. And you decided to keep going and you doubled down. Thank you. And it's so important for people to hear that, that they should always keep going. I don't even like the words never give up because you're reading three negatives. Mm. Always keep going. Always keep going. I like that. It's so important. And when you have something on your heart, I don't believe God puts things in our heart to fuck with us. It's not Mm -hmm. like,
1: ha-ha, Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) let me see what she does with this one. It's in our heart because we're supposed to do something with it. Mm -hmm. So
1: that's what I'd say the story is. I like that. (laughs) I like that a lot. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And my decision to write this piece that ended up getting published in Thrive Global just – Came out of what I felt like was a cathartic necessity to hold myself accountable because I let this get to me. Mm -hmm. Because how could it not? You have people saying things like you don't have a story and, you know, oh, man. There's I, so many things she could so say. There's so many things.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's treacherous and like you said the the I think there was like a line and you're I'm going to butcher it so you can correct me but you said like the veil between who I am and what I do sometimes blur or the line between who I am and what I do sometimes blurs. Yeah, I
1: like th- I I mean the veil is actually that that's a really great way to put it. I I think what I ended up saying is something along the lines of like, there's often no daylight between who I am and oh, what I do. that's poetic.
0: So yeah, it's so true. And I think that's so true for so many of us. And I don't know if it is good to separate. Like I've said at times like, oh, I need to learn to separate that. Like who I am isn't what I do. Like, no, maybe who I am is what I do, mm-hmm. but it's not the result of it. Sure. That's the difference. Sure. I can be my music, but I can't be the result of my music. That's where the ego is getting involved mm-hmm.
1: and it's not the soul anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, I love that. Yeah. I think case by case basis again, mm-hmm. It's it's been important for me to focus on who I am outside of the music mm-hmm. throughout this process, which has helped me get back to the reason that I got into it in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it was really tough. It got to me and I went to a not so rainbows and butterflies place in my head. And so I really kind of had to check in with myself. Luckily, like because my family, because of my, my, the suicides in my family, which by the way, it's on both sides. My dad's grandfather also committed suicide. So I got it on my mom's side and I got it on my dad's side. I have never had suicidal thoughts, but I have felt real darkness and real emptiness to the point where it doesn't feel situational anymore. It starts feeling like brain chemistry. And that's what happened here because I didn't really have a place to channel my creative energy. I just thrown everything I had into the making of this record. And then it was a waiting game. And so I've had to put a lot of work to like get back to a a healthy place. Like it yeah. doesn't have to be happy all the time, but it definitely has to be healthy. What were some of those things you did? Writing about it and holding myself accountable was extremely important. I had zero expectations about what would come from it if anybody would read it. Like I didn't know when I wrote it that it would lead to anything. It wasn't like a career move. Interestingly enough... I was feeling all these things and I was working with a PR agency at the time and I was open with them about what I was going through. And they said, you should write about it Mm -hmm. like good PR agents would. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean I should write about it? Like, I'm a songwriter. And they said, no, you should just, you should just write about it. And so I had never written an op-ed before, but I just, once I actually sat down to do it, it just poured out of me. It just came out. And all these pe- – the thing that happened is it got published and then all of these people started reaching out and saying, thank you so much for saying that. I go through it too and I haven't had the confidence or I'm afraid to speak up about it because I don't want it to affect my career. Like I have to make things look like it's great all the time. Um, I, I feel like that's not true anymore.
0: I live in a different world than that. Okay. I live in a world where – The more open you are, the more effective you are and the more people want to latch onto your story.
1: That's amazing. I don't, I live in that world. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm surrounded by as many people as you are that also live in that world. That's interesting because you can curate your Instagram. You can curate your Instagram. You should follow Jen Gotch. Okay.
0: Yeah. She's awesome. She was the first guest I ever had on the show. Oh my
1: God. That's awesome.
0: And she is a mental health advocate, but that's she awesome. was like the first person that I saw really do that. Like she would cry. She would like show herself having panic attacks. Wow. She would like, you know, talk about her anxiety. She still does like show herself when she's in the middle of depression. She has this thing called the emotional rating system. It's a one through 10 with wow. one being the worst, 10 being like mania because she, she has bipolar okay. and I need to follow her. Yeah, she's awesome. She's awesome. But like, to me, that's the new normal.
1: Okay. Well, clearly Radical I'm living in a, in a
0: cave. No, you're not living in a cave. I think there's a lot of people who are also putting that veil up or like talk about like quote unquote mental health in a way that's phony and mm-hmm. not talking about the realities of what it is. Sure. But there's a lot of people who are stepping out and being like, hey, here's my open chest. Hope yeah. you like it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that the fact that you're doing that is like honing in on a trend, mm-hmm. a great trend, not like a stupid trend that's happening mm-hmm. and that maybe needs to happen more in the music industry because a lot of the people I'm talking about are like in media.
1: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think it's really important mm-hmm. for people to continue to do that work and I'd love to see it more in the music industry. I don't, maybe I'm not following the right people, but no, I don't but see No, but there's it.
0: probably a lot more curated images Definitely. in music than in media because part of the piece of media is that you have to be yourself or people won't care to listen to you.
1: Yeah. And there's, yeah, I feel like I see a lot of curated, filtered Mm -hmm. stuff in the music world. You know, you got to make it look like you're doing the thing. And it's
0: extremes right now where it's like all these curated images or this like radical openness and it doesn't feel like there's a lot of gray in between. And it's okay if you're in the gray where you don't feel comfortable being that open. Mm -hmm. Like I'm probably not going to show myself having a panic attack, but I will talk about the fact that I have anxiety and I've struggled with depression and Mm -hmm. I go to therapy Mm -hmm. because I think that's important because no one talked about it where I grew up. Yeah. Those weren't words on people's mouths. Right. When I went home and did a show recently, like about a year and a half ago, I have a song called therapy. I talked about how much I love therapy and you would have thought I said, Hey, I love murdering people. I mean, it was like the room went silent.
1: I love that you did that. You know? That's awesome.
0: I do too. But it is it is still something that is very foreign in certain parts of the country, certain industries, and certain households. And I think we need to make it normal because totally. every human walking this earth needs that kind of support. Right. I truly believe.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm
0: so glad that you're taking your voice and making this piece of, a piece of your platform and hopefully moving forward a big piece of your music as well. Definitely. Yeah. I mean,
1: I felt like I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. It was like, my job was, is, yeah. was, is. Ugh, I'm figuring it out. My job <laughs> was to focus on social media. They would be like, well, we're in a holding pattern, like your time is coming, but what you can do is wake up and... Post your face first thing in the morning and, you know, post yourself at your gigs and get together with friends and, and sing and play and, and you know, just post all day long. And it was like, wait, I, I can't pretend that I'm not going through a tough time because this has been a really challenging part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And so the decision to write about it was a bit of healing myself, but it also opened up a few unexpected opportunities. And so I feel really grateful for that. And it it feels, it just feels right. It gets me back to that gut feeling that I talked about that I feel like for a long time I had sort of stopped really being in touch with that voice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what any of it means yet, but I'm trying not to think too much on that because I'm just going to let it be what it's meant to be. I love it. So my final two questions, I want
0: to go back to little Jessie. Okay. I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. And so I don't know what age you think of her as. Maybe it is that 13 year old who is like, just ready to go about to become a star, doing big things. <laughs> oh my gosh, how <laughs> embarrassing is that? I love her. I was like that too, but I didn't take as much action mm-hmm. as you did. But if you and little Jessie were standing in the same room, so she's seeing you as you are now, and you're looking at her, like you look, you're two separate entities in this scenario, what do you think she would say to you and why?
1: See, I think she would be so proud of me. And I would just like want to give her a hug. I mean, I've had to stop myself and remind myself that what I have accomplished has been tremendous. At the end of the day, if it's really just about the persistence, you know, in spite of all of the struggle, like, that's amazing. But I do think she'd be proud of me because she's, I've always just been that girl. Mm-hmm. Like, just a total lover. I mean, I would hope, I, I, man, if I could just get a little bit of her spark, I'm working towards that. What would you say to her and why? I would, I would probably tell her not to lose that spark. It's so easy to get a little jaded, mm-hmm. you know? It's, I, I don't know, jaded has this, Connotation to it, but it's sort of like you move out to Los Angeles and then, like, the LA thing sort of just becomes part of your reality. And I think it's important when you're like, it's such a transient city, not just with people coming in and out, but also with like people being on a mission to get f- from one place to another in this city. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to stop and take a moment. And just be like, wow, this is actually a really cool moment. And I haven't done that for a while because I've been so focused on like holding on to this thing, this iteration so tightly, not letting it slip through the cracks. And instead of like trusting that it's out of my control, but what is in my control is the work that I do on myself and the way that I approach my art and the way that I continue to just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. Because sometimes like the actual creation of the art isn't even in my control, right? Mm-hmm. That can be sort of a divine thing too. But staying in it, like I do have that control. Well, thank you so
0: much for staying in this interview. (laughs) I appreciate you, and I can't wait to share your story with
1: the world. I am so grateful for the work that you do. Oh, thanks, Curly. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Jessie Palter. For more info on Jessie, follow her at Jessie Palter. You can get her album, Paper Trail, on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your music. Thanks to Liz Full for composing the show's theme music. You can follow her at Liz Full. And thank you. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. If you really like it, tell a friend about the show and post it to your story and tag Unleash Your Inner Creative and My Personal Account and I'll reshare. My wish for you is that you don't ever put yourself in a box. And if you're feeling sad, talk about it. Tell someone. Write a song. Make a piece of art. Go Take a walk and proclaim it to the world. It's nothing to be ashamed of, and it's okay to ask for help. It's important to ask for help. we got to change the conversation so it's normal. It's okay to feel not okay. All right. I'll talk with you next week. I believe in you.